Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 5.9 The Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. I like having a, a rooting interest when it comes to March Madness. I really wish I, w- I went to a big U.S. college school. That would have been really neat to have, like, that, like just ingrained in me. I don't have it. I went to the University of Guelph-Humber. I was very close to going to Marquette. That would have been cool. Yeah, me and Jimmy Butler just, yeah, you know, you all those tough, yeah. hard-nosed <laughs> guys from Marquette and me. <laughs> Um, No, uh, so when I was done business school, I was enrolled in law school at uh, Western. I didn't end up going. um, And while I was, uh, I had deferred for a year and was just trying to like save some money and stuff like that because I couldn't afford to go yet and had kind of done all the student loan I could do in undergrad. And I, yeah, Marquette has a sports law specific really? program. So I was like, this well, is what I have been was... an agent or like, what do you do yeah, with that? Yeah, front office. There yeah. are a lot of front office people and people mm. at the league office with legal backgrounds. Um, there's a lot cool. of contract nonsense to be done in sports, <laughs> yeah. uh, salary cap stuff, yeah, agent level stuff, uh, a lot of that. And I was kind of just at the point of um, trying to figure out if, like I could actually try sports as a career and it wasn't a silly thing because I like had this business degree I didn't want to use and I didn't really want to go to law school. Uh, So anyway, I ended up um, going through that process and going down and checking Marquette out. I got in um, and then it was just part of me was still wondering if I should try the writing thing. And part of me was like, this is even more student debt than I anticipated Mm. because like I could get a partial ride, but not like going a Canadian going to grad school in the uh, US no is kidding. not yeah it's like I I had good marks and good LSATs but only for like a little help not for a full uh, a full way to go so no all we're left with uh, I do like Marquette like I will root for Marquette oh because they accepted you yeah if they if you yes. had been rejected obviously yeah, they- capitalism <laughs> rejected them or rejected yeah. me I guess yeah. but they were they were cool. Um, I've always been partial to UCLA, too, for whatever reason. Oh, really? Um, yeah, like, part of the reason I was so high on Norman Powell ahead of the draft, mm. and uh, I remember you can go back and, like, look at my – when I was running our draft coverage when I worked at The Score, um, one, I, I wrote, like, this thing about Norman Powell, like, hey, I think someone should gamble on him in the second round because if he can even become a passable shooter, he's an NBA player. And mostly I felt that way because I watched a lot of UCLA games when mm. I was working those, like, 1 a.m. shifts. Mm. Uh, there. Is that why you got the Russ? You got, your, you got like, some Russ Yeah, although weirdly things. I, like, didn't think Russ was, like, I, I wasn't that big a believer at UCLA. Like, so Arizona's on the TV right now. I thought Jared Bayless was, like, mm. going to be him uh coming out of arizona capital h yeah um this is and this is where like i mean first of all i was like i don't know 20 so how my what do i know um but also like yeah you're gonna hit on some guys over the years and you're gonna miss on some guys over the years and uh the misses will look funnier and the hits will look obvious in retrospect but Norman Powell is not on a lot of draft boards. No. Anyway, so UCLA, round pick. UCLA and Marquette are kind of where my uh, rooting We're all boilermakers now, though. Come yes. on. Well, We're- that's what I was going to say. There are Between the men's and women's tournament, there are 53 Canadians in Shout these out. NCAA tournaments, uh, 29 on the women's side, uh, including Letitia Amaher, who is maybe the best player on South Carolina, who are by far the best team in the field uh, in that one. But you've also got Aaliyah Edwards on UConn. Um, she's in the the player of the year discussion and is just like an unbelievably fun player to watch. And then on the men's side, yeah, you've got Zach Eady. And then, 
I mean, we're at the point in the the men's bracket where it used to get really exciting when like Niagara qualified and Juan yeah. Mendez. It was like, oh, well, let's see if uh, let's see if his twenty and ten in the in the MAC can carry over to against real tournament teams. And I loved Juan Mendez, but it could not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's like, well, yeah, like almost every team has a Canadian now. They're not all just on Oregon no. anymore and Niagara. So um, it's a lot of fun. I would suggest your rooting allegiances go toward Canadian players. So yeah, Purdue yeah, is, and it, uh, is a good choice. Yeah. And uh, with a legitimate chance to win it all as a number one seed and like uh, no offense to RJ Barrett. Like, I don't think anybody was rooting for Duke and no, when you he can't. Was... And if you were, <laughs> uh, uh, can I see your badge number officer? <laughs> I think a lot of people were were on board with the Wiggins uh, Kansas run, right? Because I think those were on national TV here because he was the next one. And Jamal Murray got a little bit of like Jamal Murray was like he was almost like villain Brooks before villain Brooks because he was on Kentucky and nobody likes Kentucky and he was doing the blue arrow thing all the time. Right. He had the coach. Didn't he have a run in with coach K too? Yeah, a little bit. Um, anyway, so you, you've got a lot of options here. You've got Ryan Nembard on Creighton, which is a fun one. Bama who are, are probably going to make some noise here. I have Charles Bidiaco. Mm. Um, you've got a a lot of ways you can go, but Zach Eady's the one, like if you're going to, if you're going to put your rooting interest behind a Canadian for, you know, national loyalty reasons. It's Zach Eady and Purdue this year. Yeah, I, I know we just did this a little bit with Grange, but I do I, I want to expand a little bit on the Eady to the Raptors thing because, yeah, for a guy that's going to be a second-round pick, the Raptors will have an opportunity to select him. It's obviously a position of need, having a big man. Um, I... I can't say that I know too much about his mobility as a defender at seven foot four. I know he's he's pretty good in around the bucket scoring against college level players, and you can't teach size and seven four is seven four. But like, is that and and he's only been playing what basketball since he was fifteen years old? So there's probably more to come from a progression standpoint. But is he a guy that would make sense for this Raptors team? I mean, it makes sense if you're plan for him is to see a lot of 905 time initially to try to build out those skills like i mentioned with the strength and conditioning staff um you know work on that defensive mobility try to turn some of what is just size into functional size because the problem is though don't they have a, one of those guys in christian coloco like aren't no, they trying to do the same thing with him almost the opposite where christian coloco has all the defensive tools mm. that you need and they're working with him to try to like not be a non-zero offensively. If you could merge Christian Coloco <laughs> and Zach Eady into one guy, yeah. you you're winning the championship next year. You have like Wemby but thick, like you're you're, you're golden. Um, no, so Coloco, you know, they're they're his time in the 905 is a lot more about the offensive side Mm -hmm. um we've seen you know grange and and chris black and those guys will tweet out the d ratings with coloco on the floor for the season and until pertle got here he was basically the only big man the raptors could play decent defense uh with on the floor with Edie, it would be more about can he give you minutes in those bench lineups and you you'd maybe have to slow things down a little bit i know grange was talking about that he runs the floor well but the raptors bench units as currently constructed are just like pure chaos Mm -hmm. and sprinting um so you'd maybe have to be a little more intentional about that but that might be a good thing to have a hub that you can run a second unit offense through a little bit um maybe not out of the gate because even for a national player of the year that's a tough thing like luca garza uh won national player of the year not all that long ago now he was like 40 in college at the time, mm. but he also had bonkers offensive numbers. And the questions were, can he be enough defensively to keep his offense 
on the floor? And so far, the answer has been no. He's a he's a pretty solid G leaguer, but he hasn't gotten a lot of NBA time. Um, Zach Eadie's much bigger than him, though, and has more perception wise, at least based on his experience level and how quickly he's improved a little bit more developmental runway. So um, I could see more clicking into place for him. I think at worst you use him, you t- use a second round pick on him, um, you know, give him lots of nine Oh five time or if whatever well, team it is, is, give him lots of G league time. Yeah. What I was referencing in talking about Coloco, not that, yeah, they're working on the same thing, but you're talking about another developmental big, right? Who's yeah. going to take time away from the other guy at the nine Oh five. But if Coloco is not like the timeline for these guys to graduate from nine Oh five to Raptors relevancy is only supposed to be about a year. Like it's DeLon Wright did a second run with the 905, but that was because he had a big shoulder injury Mm -hmm. and needed to get like rehab reps down there. Um, You didn't see Fred or Pascal or Jakob or Norm go back down for a second run. Chris Boucher didn't really go back down for a second run. Um, Banton's been back down there, but that's because he hasn't made the most of uh, his limited NBA opportunities this year. And when he's gone down there, he hasn't played super well. Mm. Um, He's also dealt with a couple injuries and and things like that. But um, normally it's supposed to be one and done one and done. Like ideally, like it's not this simple, but let's say you always had two guys who you were running through the nine Oh five. Well, those guys would graduate to bench roles next year. Mm-hmm. Two of your bench guys might graduate to starters or price themselves out, or you give up on them. And then and the then next the two starters would graduate and, to the front office. And well, <laughs> or they age out or you trade them away. Um, you know, guys don't stay good forever. Yeah. It's like, and, and you know, Fred and Pascal are obviously the ideal of this. You start and yes, Pat, we could throw Pascal's first 40 games starting. Cause that was kind of a farce anyway, but yeah. you do your rookie year. You're with the G league. Your second year, you're a big part of the bench unit. Your third year, Pascal's starting, Fred's off the bench, but there are even larger parts of mm-hmm. of what's going on. And then by the fourth year, you're like, yeah, your starters and you're a big part of this. It's not as linear as that for a lot of guys. Even with Chris Boucher, it was like, okay, you're the G League MVP, but we don't trust you in even spot minutes in the NBA yet. Mm. And then it was like, okay, we trust you a little bit because sometimes you're really good and sometimes you're going to go like six games without playing. Um, and then that eventually turned into, you know, his cap seemed to be, okay, six men. You're getting 20 minutes of, of really good energy and, and, you know, more consistent than most bench bigs um, at this point. So I, I would think with Coloco, you're probably hoping he can give you, like he is a part of your bench units next year. And then whether it's Zach Eady or someone else, if you grab a big, um, you have that that developmental runway. There's also an element of internal competition, right? Mm-hmm. Summer league, um, all these runs that the Raptors do in the offseason, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the developmental guys will spend a lot of time together throughout the course of the offseason. It's not just those Rico Hines runs we get YouTube looks at. They'll spend time together in Los Angeles, um, and those Rico Hines runs will be a part of it. They'll spend time together in Toronto. They'll spend time together. It used to be Burnaby when Alex McKechnie had his, his uh, Fortius sports out there. I don't know if they're still doing Burnaby as part of the circuit um, and then Vegas for summer league and they'll kind of rotate around. And so you'll have the young guys on the team, the draft picks, the couple summer league guys who are trying to stick your Jeff Doutons of the world who are maybe restricted free agents and still in limbo. And I think that kind of competition of the positions can only be good. You're not going to have Jakob Pertle in those summer runs. He's going to be on beach with Pascal somewhere. That's right. Um, so I, I think that can be good, but mo- celebrating a 20 million a year yes. new deal. But most of what I'm talking about with Edie, most of the analysis here about his NBA prospects, you could 
take the Raptors out of the conversation and it would make, it would apply to just about anywhere yeah. he's going to go. Um, I think and everybody only, will have a chance at him though. I mean, he's not going to go yeah. in the first round probably. And there are teams with like 400 second round picks. Yeah. The, the thunder are one of them. Well, those are, there are first round picks. I think it's the Pacers that own the entire second round. I, this I year. thought I was just looking at it. I thought the thunder for this upcoming draft have like four second round picks. Maybe it is. Bring up your spreadsheet. I know they have four first round rounders in 2024. Oh yeah. They got all the, they have, Tons and tons of uh, of picks for sure. Um, All right, you've convinced me. The Hornets have uh, a late first and three seconds Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, well, and if you're that high on Zach Eady, you can trade into one of those selections, right? Like, and like it's not hard to trade up in the second round, and you know, you can pay for them, can't you? Yeah, you could just buy them. Yeah, (laughs) just Uh, money. There's always money in the banana stand. (laughs) That's Um, right. And and like the risk of a late first round pick. It's not really a risk financially. It's that it's it's a four-year contract and two of those years are guaranteed and you have to make the decisions on guys early. Whereas if you get Zach Eady in the the, th- the second round, maybe it's a case where, yeah, you like Coloco, you guarantee his first year at even above the minimum. Who cares? Mm. And that's a way to get him and then you have some kind of more team-friendly decision points as, as the later that contract goes. I think the big takeaway here is Zach Eady should absolutely get drafted and developed and should probably get at least, you know, two years of working with NBA G League clubs to see what they can turn him into because not when you're seven foot four and you have this level of touch and this level of skill around the rim and you can run the floor capably and have shown a capacity for improvement defensively, even if you're not a a good defender still, um, I think you look at all those things and that's a really rare type of player to get in the second round. And if he... I don't know if he hits his like 60th percentile outcome. That's a guy who could be a big piece of your bench units for like five, six years. Yeah. Capital B and big. Uh, Cause he's seven foot four. All right. You've convinced me Zach Eady's good and the Raptors should draft First him. overall. Uh, now, <laughs> now convince me that OG Ananobi's a good defender and the Raptors should uh, do everything within their power to retain him. Uh, your story on sportsnet.ca is OG Ananobi is a defensive unicorn. How will that impact his contract talks with the Raptors? Now, he's uh, his contract runs through next season. He has a player option in 24-25, which will be declined. He will become a, a free agent at that point. And as you point out in the piece, that as the way the, the way the CBA is currently written, the most the Raptors can offer him is a 20% increase in in contract value on an extension. That being said, there are CBA negotiations underway right now. Like, how... Closely, should Raptors fans be watching the outcome of this, the potential change in the CBA language where the Raptors have a better chance of retaining OG Ananobi beyond 24-25? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it changes it from an obvious no to an obvious yes, but without getting, you can check out the piece if you want to get into the specific numbers, but basically one of the problems with the current collective bargaining agreement is it makes it, if you are not a first-round pick finishing up your rookie deal or a max contract player, it's really hard to extend a player because it's so restrictive on what type of raises you can give and when you can give an extension and things like that. Basically, if you're a first round pick or you're a max guy, extensions are fun. Everyone else, it's, uh, it's not great. What One of the things that is being kicked around in a new CBA and my reporting on this in talking to people around the league is that if a new CBA gets agreed to in time, right now the, the deadline is March 31st for both sides to opt out of the current agreement. And then that would be that would go through to um, twenty the summer of 2024. If this gets agreed on, they'll throw away next year. They'll kick in the new CBA 
starting this summer, which would be great for guys in OG's position because you have that level of certainty ahead of time. The most important thing, though, is that 20% raise is expected to go up to 40% raise, maybe even 50% raise. And then suddenly you're talking about, and you have to keep in mind with this stuff that, yes, four years and $100 million a couple years ago would have sounded like an awful lot of money for OG and OB. It's not a pittance, but this is a league that is very, very top heavy in terms of salary. Um, And, you know, four years, a hundred million when the salary cap is expected to go up significantly this year and then significantly again the next year. Um, We're talking like seven, eight percent annual increases, uh, not one million dollars. Gary Bettman, Um, when you are looking at that, you kind of have to recalibrate your what a contract means to you. So four years, a hundred million had OG got that when he signed this initial extension, that would have been an awful lot of money. He got like four years, 72 and change instead. Mm. Um, But that's where the cap has gone. And OG's, delivered on that uh, a little bit more. I know you're freaking out. Princeton is, uh, well, is maybe going to knock off my, my Jared Bayless Arizona Wildcats. <laughs> Here's the thing with this is that, yeah, it's 15 over two and that's cool. Um, and uh, yeah, everybody loves underdogs. And uh, yeah, Princeton, not exactly a, a powerhouse athletic school, but it, you, I, it's hard to root too hard for Princeton, I think, in, in, in things. Uh, this is the only, I feel like, Tournament basketball is the only time you can ever really bring yourself to root for um, Ivy League yeah. clubs. And maybe I'm just saying this because we're about to have Mr. Harvard on the show and John Morosi. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's half the time when we'd have him on when I was on the fan morning show, half the time it was just him and Ailish talking Ivy League stuff. Oh, yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we get it. I, uh, I almost went to Marquette. Yeah. I, I got That's to, pretty good, man. I, yeah, Don't we're on the school bus. That. I'm the dog in me school. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are going to... I got rejected from Ryerson's. Yeah. Uh, they're, mis- they're lost. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Um Anyway, so Princeton uh, is about to knock off Arizona in a 15-2 upset, which is... Uh, it's cool anytime that happens, unless you have Arizona going very far in the tournament. How's your bracket look after that? Um, I mean, I had Arizona going to the Elite Eight. All right. So that's not great. Nope. Oh, it's now uh, official. Yeah. Uh, 59 55. All right. So put a capper on the OG thing. Yeah. Uh, if these changes go through and they go through in time, it is, I think, likelier that OG Ananobi can come to terms on an extension with the Raptors this offseason. If you're his representation, though, aren't you, like, trying to max this out? Like, I mean, I guess it depends on how the next two years go. He's not going to get max money is the thing. And I know that you could want your... Part of my argument for this is I understand the reporting that's been out there about him wanting a larger role in the offense, and that's true of 400 players in the league at Mm -hmm. any given time. But a way you can manage around that, you can't tell OG Ananobi... You can't hand him a piece of paper and say, this is the script for the next year's worth of plays, and you're going to get this percentage (laughs) of them. What you can do is slide a contract across the table that says, look, we're willing to pay you as if that's going to happen. And And we're incentivized to do it. And if it doesn't happen, at least you've got the money, and we've shown you, we value you, you're a long-term piece here. If the usage stuff doesn't work out, the offensive role doesn't work out, at least you don't have to worry about, well, my free agency money what about my next contract mm. there's that's not all of it there's an ego element there's a yeah. you want to see every what the best you can absolutely do as an individual basketball player is um but i do think that having that wider band to negotiate within um really helps oh well okay so let's let's figure this out in the new cba so there's uh, not this uncertainty surrounding og Ananobi beyond the uh, 23-24 seasons. Here's the other thing, and just because it's March Madness, the other thing that they're gonna they're talking about in this new CBA is we're gonna be done with the one and dones. Yeah, 
Um, very likely, it sounds like. Now, they'd probably have to... Going back to 18-year-olds? Well, yeah, once you're done high school or, yeah. or whatever the age cutoff is, 18 in the draft year. Um, we'll see what the exact language is. Um, but, you know, if you're watching March Madness right now and getting excited and seeing some of these guys, that talent pool could be a little thinner. Now, it won't be... It's always been a little overstated just how many high school guys like went to the NBA and made an impact. There are cautionary tales and, and NIL deals now could still incentivize some of those fringy guys to go the college route. I think of like an Amir Johnson type. He was the last player ever drafted out of high school, by the way. Is that right? Yeah, because he was a late second round pick. Okay. Um, you know, does a guy like that who's on the fringes of being drafted go to college if there's an NIL deal? Mm. there I, I don't know i've never asked Amir about it He's, wait th- this impacts Bronny james too right well this is the thing is um so one of the pushbacks to these negotiations in the past from the team side has been how can you change the rules on short notice mm. like so what the oklahoma city thunder own every pick this year and you and you change <laughs> it so you can the, also draft yeah. high school kids now and all these teams that just traded their picks away are like no, no what the heck yeah we, we traded those away not knowing right um, so i think you'd have to announce it like you certainly wouldn't have to go seven years in the future yeah and, but like so if you're the you know if you're one of those teams that doesn't own any more picks sorry too bad mm. uh, but yeah i would imagine that's something they would announce for like hey 2025 draft or something no, like that. but if They'd it's that it far ahead of time. if it's that far out in advance there was speculation that this was gonna take place anyways right like that was always uh, mm-hmm. a fraught conversation around dealing first round picks that far into yes, the future absolutely you and you know it's you have to deal them because they're your biggest trade chips but I don't know if I'm a team, if I'm not in like pure championship window, dealing a pick out more than like two years in advance always feels uh, a little risky. I only mention that not because it's particularly relevant to the Raptors, but because March Madness is on and everyone's yeah. going to be in draft mode the next couple of weeks. We, we got to find out who from Princeton should, should go in the, <laughs> in the second round. Now. I, I don't know. I don't have the box score handy. I can only watch so closely when we're doing a live show. Um, yeah. I, I, I have no idea. Uh, what I do know is that the Lakers um, became the latest team to suffer a humiliating and uh, surprising defeat to the Houston Rockets, who have now, in the span of a week, beaten the Celtics. And now the Lakers, I mean, it's a lesser um, notch on the belt to beat a Lakers team without Anthony Davis and LeBron James, but notably no Anthony Davis, who will play tomorrow against the Mavericks. Like, he's, they called it a foot injury. It's, it was back-to-back. Okay, I get it. But this team is, they're... Life and death Half to make the up. playoffs or to make the play-in tournament. And beyond that, if they're not that relevant as far as the play-in tournament when LeBron James returns to full health, he's probably not going to return. I know I mentioned this to you before the show, asking if you'd seen Flea's tweets. Flea is such a kind man. He, he like, what, a, man, of the, the celebrities on planet Earth that I would love to just spend a day with. I think he's top five. But anyways, huge Laker fan, as we all know. Huge UCLA fan as well. Me yeah. and Flea. Yeah, you and Flea. Uh, I think he plays the bass better than you. All right. Uh, You've he, never heard me play the bass. I, I, I'm just guessing. Uh, he tweeted this out. Laker losses are always sad for me. This particular one, which was entirely avoidable and happened in a crucial game, has got me in a frothing frenzy of fury F. And then, yeah, he didn't, he wrote out the, the whole thing. And then uh, subsequently, I love Darvin Ham, <laughs> but, and, and think he is a great coach, but this is a massive mistake with huge repercussions. I get it. He's made a glass, but yeah, you, you, you gotta, like Anthony Davis is the key cog to a Lakers team that is 
if they get into a playing situation, if they get into a first round series against the Nuggets, can win a championship, but they got to get there first. And we're running out of runway here. How do you do that? And you lose to the Rockets. It's very tough. And I, I would guess the accounting on this is um, one. If you get to the plan and you don't have Anthony Davis healthy, it doesn't really matter that you got there because he has been very fragile. And two, you should be able to beat the Rockets without Anthony Davis and LeBron James. And there was a good test case for it. The last time Anthony Davis and LeBron both missed the game, uh, they with it, and they also didn't have D'Angelo Russell for that game, and they beat the Thunder. And the Thunder didn't have Shea in that game, but mm. the Rockets are basically what if you took all the Thunder's good players away? Mm. They they got they're they're not a good looking team. No. And I say this as a Jalen Green and Alperen Shingun fan. Um, and well, Jay, Jay Sean Tate just wasting away there. Went nuts, right? They, mm. they started Rui Hachimura at center. They had no yeah. size in, inside and got outscored by like 30 points in the paint. Right, and they ended up playing Wenyan Gabriel like as their center the, the rest of the way. And he, hey, Wenyan Gabriel, 14 rebounds. That, that's great. He, had a, he was a plus 12 in that mm. game somehow. But yeah, you've got to make some really tough decisions when AD and LeBron are out. And I think um, I understand Flea's frustration. I, don't, I doubt very much Darvin Ham had the decision himself. But you got to get more out of D'Angelo Russell in a game like that. Like D'Angelo Russell has been the number one guy on teams that won 30 games before. He should know how to beat a 20-win Rockets team. Those are exactly the games he probably should put up 30 points in. Um, Dennis Schroeder had 26 the last time LeBron and AD were out and then shot 3 of 10 last night. Got the line well, but but still not a, as good a game Oof. as they needed from him. So it's tough accounting for the Lakers overall with the the injury, with the fragility of their stars. But, yeah, you cannot have another one of those. Like, you're half a game up, and we're running out of time. Twelve games left. No, this is it. I know. And, yeah, Davis is, yes, he it was uh, Charles Barkley, I think, who coined him street clothes. Um, yeah. It's a, such a good nickname. <laughs> it was, but it was accurate, right? Yeah. It's, the, I think my only nickname favor that I like more than that, and I really wish I had thought of it first because OG Ananobi has a cool enough name that he doesn't need a nickname, but Davion Mitchell going by off night yeah, I like is that one. so good. It's very, very good. Anyways, uh, just, I, I get it. You're right. And if you get to the postseason, you don't have Anthony Davis, you're screwed. But yeah, again, I think the, the first part is the most important. You take care of the thing that is, uh, yeah, the most important, which is getting into the play-in tournament, which means winning every game. And yeah, you, you can't afford, the way this team has played this season, you can't afford to look at any game on the schedule and say that that's a guaranteed win. And you want to talk about, you know, Damian Lillard doing this terrific interview about the state of the NBA right now and, and the clash between rings culture and all this good work you can do in a regular season or over the course of your career. And, you know, you, you start to think about, well, how do you make the regular season matter more? Well, in the Western Conference this year, they've kind of done that, right? You mm-hmm. and I have been talking about it for a long time, that there are 13 teams for six playoff, for sure playoff spots and only 10 play-in spots. Um, and these are this is where these games matter. Not only the games matter right now, but if you're the Lakers and say you could you know, reset the game and pull the controller out or whatever and start the season over, you suddenly start to realize that a lot of those games you just punted away not being locked in early in the season really mattered, right? Like you, the best way to not have to worry about do you or don't you start Anthony Davis against the Rockets in March because it matters for playoff seeding is to have it not matter for playoff seeding and have done the work when your guys were healthy and figure your stuff out before February 9th, Lakers front office. Like, it, it, it would suck to have a playoffs without LeBron. Absolutely. But this is a really good lesson to everyone else, whether it's Dames uh, Blazers who are more or less out of the mix. Now um, the, the Zionless Pelicans, all of those teams, the regular season 
the last little bit has mattered a lot. Dude, that's a great point that it's not just that this part of the regular season is emphasized that this this situation that all these Western Conference teams are in is is emphasizing the regular season to start like in game one of next year. Sacramento's not worrying about who's healthy and feeling who's playing great. for... Yeah, they've locked they're in like, a 500 record for the first time since Rick Adelman. Yeah, they're like, do we have enough bulbs to light the beam as many times as we're going to need to this spring? Absolutely. Fingers crossed. Kings, right. Knicks, NBA Finals. Let's go. <laughs> Beat total chaos. All right, when we come back, we'll talk to our pal John Morosi, MLB Network, as uh, the fan drive time continues. Ben Annis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis, and Blake Murphy. And Mr. World Baseball Classic joins us right now, John Morosi. And it's been such a fun tournament, John. And that was such a fun game between Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic until, like, everything changed in a moment. Like, I, I know you weren't there, but, like, can you describe what, what you were thinking watching what unfolded with Enwood and Diaz? Ben and Blake, uh, good evening. It, it was surreal. And uh, to be honest, I was, we were broadcasting our game in Phoenix, and so I was watching it on a monitor. I, I had my, our game on one monitor and then the, the Puerto Rico-Dominican game on the next one, and I was as crestfallen as everybody else was in, the, in that ballpark. And I think the, the gravity of it was evident in the reaction of Diaz's teammates. And it's just it's a, it is, in a baseball context, about as, as sad of a feeling as you could have on a field uh, and, and at a ballpark was to see what happened yesterday at the end of the game, because on first and foremost, you're, you're concerned and, and worried for Edwin's season. And of course, now we know more about the patellar tendon injury. Uh, so number one, the impact for him, the impact for the Mets and also for, for team Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican fans who were there. Uh, that was a, that was an epic victory one of the biggest they've had in this tournament and the chance to celebrate it was was taken from them by what can only be described as a, as a freak injury a freak occurrence so um it really is just uh, a, a heartbreaking circumstance i'm just i'm crestfallen for edwin and, and team puerto rico and now of course they've got to turn around and about 24 hours from now they're going to be playing mexico in the quarterfinals and a, a chance to move on to the semis but they'll be doing it without someone who was a, a very, very close friend of a lot of players in that clubhouse. John, it's so tough, and obviously the reaction to it, certain people are going to react certain ways and you know not give it a full thought, in my opinion, and look at the wall. He got hurt in the World Baseball Classic, even though it wasn't an injury during play, and it was such a freak thing. Um, do you see this bringing up, like as, the, as Major League Baseball continues to try to make this such a marquee event and it's obviously something that's very important to rob manfred um do you see this being kind of a a hot button issue even if even if logically we can see that it was a a freak occurrence it didn't actually happen during play and all of those things do you see it being something that ownership maybe raises moving forward unfortunately I don't, to, to be honest, I don't, uh, any more so than they already do. Uh, I suppose there, there's always been a, a certain group of teams 
that are a little more reluctant to let their players play, and, and that'll probably be the case no matter what transpired yesterday. Uh, I think from a player's standpoint, it's one of the most important things to point out is that this is a cooperative tournament between the Players Association and MLB. Both parties want this to happen. MLB sees the marketing potential. The players want to represent their countries. There's obviously extraordinary uh, amounts of money to be raised by the tournament, which, which goes back in many cases to the federations and, yes, to the players as well. So there is something in this for everybody, and that is the case today. That was the case yesterday morning before this circumstance transpired at the end of the game in Miami. And from a player, from a player participation standpoint, there is, there is not going to be a single player of any of the six remaining teams who shows up to their next workout for their team today or tomorrow and says, you know what, after watching that replay, I'm out, I'm done. No one's going to do that. There's not going to be a single player who does that. And um, I, I think that players universally want to play. There, there may be some organizations that, that put a little more pressure on certain players in the future, but that's, that's always been the case. And certainly we're, we're three years away from the next tournament. It's a long time in terms of uh, how attitudes can change and evolve. I think that the tournament has done a lot of work on, on the insurance aspect of, of it, where there are insurance policies. Mm, wish we had insurance. Are covered oh. from a financial perspective, but it's but obviously it's it's the talent and the player that's that's the big concern right now. Uh, John, so let's, let's talk about the game a little bit. It was it was a great game, despite the fact that it was a three run lead towards the ninth inning. Edwin Diaz looked spectacular, and man, Teoscar Hernandez was putting together a pretty good at bat. And if he gets on, you got Juan Soto. Then the top of that just brutal, brutal Dominican Republic lineup. Uh, that being said, that's a huge disappointment for a Dominican Republic team that Blake and I, you know, we spent a couple of shows talking about how potent that lineup would be. And of course, no Vladimir Guerrero Jr. in it, but that they're headed home before the knockout stage is a, is a massive surprise, at least to me. It is. And and there were a team that uh, certainly I I predicted that it would be the Dominican Republic and Venezuela advancing out of the group. And obviously I, I only batted 50% on that one. Um, and when you look at it, we had talked, I, know, I think the three of us had this exact conversation. It was arguably one of the best infields ever assembled anywhere in the history of the sport. And they did not even reach the quarterfinal. That is a remarkable thing to say. I think it's more of a credit, I believe, to what Puerto Rico did correctly. I think you've got to credit their, their, general manager and certainly Yadier Molina running the game and just getting different looks. I mean, basically the Dominican never got comfortable being able to have the the, the same at bats against the same pitchers and back-to-back plate appearances because there were so many different relievers coming out of that bullpen. So I I saw a really inspired team Puerto Rico playing in that game. Puerto Rico does not have the same amount of stars as the Dominican does, not even close to be honest with you in terms of the the rosters and how, how famous the players are. Uh, Lindor certainly is, is a big name, uh, but there, there's not the same depth of superstars as what the Dominican has. So certainly a huge upset, one of the, but, but I just think that you have to consider how, how proud Puerto Rico is as a baseball country and how well they have done in this tournament for a long time. They've reached the semifinal now um, twice in a row. 
And if they can find a way to win tomorrow, it's going to be three times in a row, which which is really rarefied air in terms of this tournament. Only Japan um, and, and the Dominican can say the same thing in the last couple of times. So it's been a, a really, really impressive show for them uh, here in the last last couple of rounds. So we're looking at a, a semifinal where Japan and Cuba have moved through and Cuba will play the U.S.-Venezuela winner in uh, Miami. Um, I know there have been some tremendous crowds already in this tournament john uh, i'm hoping you're going to get to be there in miami because uh, a cuba u.s game in miami to me is maybe the the coolest crowd experience you could put together on paper for this tournament how, how fired up would you be for for that matchup if the u.s gets through yeah blake i i see i really see no compelling storylines there right i i can't think of any uh <laughs> no, of course i'm joking uh no that, that, that's a uh, you're right that that would be a, a matchup for the ages and even if you have a venezuela cuba game that would be a matchup for the ages as well i mean there's Miami and, and and yes, I can uh, gladly report to you that uh, I am I am in Miami now. Actually, moving through some some beautiful traffic here, but it's been it's been a great uh, great entrance to Miami. We've had a lot of fun already. But I, for me, this is the spiritual home of this tournament, at least in this hemisphere. I think Tokyo certainly in Asia and then here because of just the, the blend of cultures that you get, um, the the sounds and the sights that I know you, you saw of the games that, that transpired here in, in pool play, we're going to get even more. And I, I've joked, it's not even much of a joke, that uh, that last week was about the time that my ears had stopped ringing from the last time I was here in 2017. It took about six years for the ringing to go away. Um, and that's that's true. It's it's uh, I, I give that as a compliment because it's going to be loud. It'll be raucous. They'll be. It's like going to a playoff game at the Bell Center in Montreal against the Bruins, except when you add in um, a, a drum and horn section in every every section of the of the arena. That's what it sounds like basically here. So um, it's great. It's loud. It's passionate. There's flags waving, and I think too. On, on the the Cuban angle, you're right. I mean, it's we're we're here in Little Havana. And you've got the Cuban national team coming in with a with a couple active major league players. I mean, it's there. We could write a book right now about is from having spoken in the past with with Cuban Americans about this. Is that is that to some Cuban Americans, not all, but to some, they they look at the players on the field and they appreciate their athleticism. They appreciate their passion for the game, and they can, in their own way respect and admire the players without without conflating that with how they feel about the government for them it's two separate things that that to cheer for a great play is not to cheer for a government that's a separate thing and i think that that's that is part of the nuance in in speaking with cuban-american friends of mine in the past that i've always respected about how um i i listen i, I listen to how they feel about it where it's it's not for me to say what's what's right or wrong or how any anybody should cheer I'm just really sensitive to how their emotions play out, and and I can only imagine how much complexity and nuance of emotion that we're going to see if that's the matchup. But rest assured, if that's the matchup, there's going to be a a profound amount of emotion on both sides of that game. Yeah, and and no doubt uh, Fox and Major League Baseball uh, rooting hard for the United States. Uh, Mike Trout has been great in this tournament, and I I didn't expect him to need to be so great last night, but he was, uh, and good thing he was because he was three for uh, four with three RBIs as the United States just narrowly edging out Colombia 3 to 2 to advance this is a guy, I I think if if I was going to choose a, a, a an English speaking cheerleader um of this tournament from the player pool Mike Trout 
might be the the guy that I choose because he's been like at every instance, John, he's been talking about how great this tournament, even in the wake of the Edwin Diaz thing yesterday after the game was asked about it and said, no, like no hesitation. This, this tournament has been spectacular. What have you made of Mike Trout's WBC debut? It's been great, and I think it's it's elevated his profile in the country uh, to what what he means uh, to to the American baseball fan. It was interesting uh, going through player introductions. You know, it's always it's always interesting for me to listen to the response of a crowd when a national team is introduced, whether it's at a soccer game, a hockey game, where you get a sense for who the the fan the the, the fan in a non local market views the national team players. And in this case, Trout got the biggest ovation. I think Mookie Betts was probably a strong second. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., by the way, was still probably somewhere in the top three or four at the coaching staff, which I loved as a, as a child of the 1990s. But uh, for me, it, it really has taken Trout's presence in the game and I think made him more relatable and connectable to a larger number of people across the country. And I think that honestly, being that he hasn't played in the postseason since 2014, I think it's important for his profile and for the sport that he did this. And not only that he's doing it, but that he's having so much fun doing it. He has said on multiple occasions that this is the most fun that he's had in baseball, maybe, maybe ever. Um, and you see how much fun he's having playing with Mookie Betts and Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado and just the entire atmosphere at Team USA. And Mark DeRosa has done such a great job as the manager. So um, Mike Trout had a certifiable major league and WBC and national baseball moment last night in a game that the U.S. needed to win. I mean, he, he had a, a drove in all three runs in a 3-2 victory. It's hard to uh, hard to ask for more from your captain than what he delivered. So it was great. And just in my own experience in interviewing Mike, he's, he's I think even more animated now than he's been before. Uh, he really is authentically and emotionally invested in what's happening. And I'm, I'm just happy for him, to be honest with you. Just as someone that's covered the game for a long time and, and followed him for a lot of his career, I can see how much he's enjoying it. And, and his enjoyment of it is elevating the WBC and elevating the sport. Well, we could be headed for a Mike Trout against Shohei Otani final, potentially, which would be uh, yes. a lot of fun, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And as much as all of our eyes would be on that head-to-head, I'm curious, John, uh, and maybe it's too early for this because he is just 21 and probably a couple years away from uh, even the early posting system. Is Roki Sasaki a guy that we need to start talking about as the next kind of international star we'll we'll be looking at as someone who uh, Major League Baseball teams want to get out of Japan? Oh, yes. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. It's probably going to take a couple of years, as you point out, before Sasaki's able to come over. Uh, but, yes, he is. He has MLB superstar written all over him. I think, um, I think there's actually a couple others on that team that, that could as well. I've been really impressed by Kondo playing in right field for Team Japan. He's been excellent. Um, Yoshinobu Yamamoto has also been very, very good. So, but, but Sasaki, just with his physicality the stuff are just he's just such a special special pitcher so i I think for me yes uh follow him uh become a fan of npb get your scouting reports now and start dreaming out what he could mean for the jays rotation in years to come yeah we just got to figure out how to watch those npb games and what time they're on but yeah we'll on you have the internet (laughs) all right we'll we'll get on that (laughs) john uh enjoy the rest of the tournament thanks thanks guys always a pleasure all the best thank you Thanks, John. John Morosi, Mr. World Baseball Classic, working for MLB Network. The Mike Trout thing is interesting to me because 
that was the biggest moment of his career yesterday, trailing Columbia 2-1 in a must-win game in the World <laughs> Baseball Classic. After the guy's racked up a number of MVPs and is already a Hall of Famer if his career ended today, but needed to come up with three hits, three RBIs to win a game for the United States of America. Uh, you wanted to interject here? Well, I have an issue with the term um, must win because oh, yeah. there, was, there that- was, yeah, they, I think Columbia had to beat the United States, what, like 12, 10? To- well, it had to, it, it changed depending on the, it wasn't just the margin. It was about how yeah. many runs total. So there was a weird scenario where not only would it have made sense, like say Columbia got way ahead in that game, yeah, but they got, like say they got up 10, nothing right away. Well, there would have been a weird incentive, depending on the the math in some scenarios, to allow the U.S. a couple of runs so that the game could extend so that they could add more runs under the secondary mercy rules. Makes sense. There was also a scenario that the broadcast pointed out where the United States had, like, let's say it came down to bases loaded, bottom of the ninth, the U.S. is leading by one it actually would have made sense to walk in two consecutive runs because that saves you and puts you through, whereas a grand slam could potentially knock you out. So (laughs) I have, yes, I understand. There's great things about the tournament. That's stupid. Yes. And also the fact that, I mean, I know there are a lot of good stats people working for MLB, including my pal Sarah Langs, who's been doing a lot of the... um, the the data work that that feed the Moroses and the Buck Martinez of the world, uh, it would have been really helpful to at least have like a graphic up during that game of like, hey, if the score is this, this who's who gets through, and and like some sort of graph or table of like these are the scenarios rather than just guessing and mm-hmm. trying to recalculate. Well, if the if the mercy were to happen with this many outs yeah. versus this many outs. I think we can get around this pretty easily in the future. I think we can go back to uh, plus minus. And if there's one brawl every four or five World Baseball Classics, I don't know. It's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I have no problem with brawls. I don't think we need to do quotients and, hey, earned runs count more in some scenarios than unearned runs. No, uh, I like convoluted calculations and stuff like that. Not live in the game. I I don't need to be playing out those scenarios where, uh, you know, it might benefit you to boot a ball instead of especially we're talking about a sport where you never do that. Like we're not used to doing that. We have no idea what you're talking about when you're talking about. Yeah. Number of outs recorded versus number of earned runs. Anyways, we're beyond that. It's single elimination now. But back to Mike Trout, who no, he appeared in playoff games. Okay, we forget this. In 2014, he played against the Royals in three. Uh, I don't forget because I actually think it's funnier that he like rather he than home no run. playoff games, he went and got like one tiny little taste of it. So he's already lost the the like oh best player to never make the playoffs thing. Yeah, which is like I maybe playoffs isn't the right one, but I always thought like Mike Conley making his first All Star team late in his career sucked because he went from. Best player to never get all-star nod to yeah. one-time all-star. Well, yeah. Ernie Banks, like, it's hard to take that away from Ernie Banks. Like, any of those Cubs players, like, great Cubs players yeah. that, that never made a World Series but and means they never made the playoffs. Yeah. Those guys kind of hold the uh, the mantle of best players never to, to make the playoffs. So he's made the playoffs. He's done that. He's gotten a taste, and he did okay. He hit a home run. He's one for 12, though. Yeah, but the one. What a one. What a one. <laughs> Anyways, it's been a while. That was almost 10 years ago. And in the interim, he's become the best player in Major League Baseball, maybe in the history of the sport. Like, there's an argument to be made. He might not even be the best. It's wild. Like, I know we've done this a million times, 
Mike Trout might be the best player in the history of the sport. And if it's not him, one of the names you would bring up to argue against Mike Trout is his teammate. Exactly. <laughs> but anyways, I wonder if playing in these meaningful games in front of passionate fans rekindles something in his mind or maybe kindles it. Maybe it was never kindled to begin with that. Hey, playing in these playoff games are actually important. And I've done everything there is to do in the sport, except excel in this situation. And maybe I'm proving to people that I can do it considering my performance in the world baseball classic to this point. Wonder if like this continues for more and more years and show, Hey, waves goodbye at the end of the season. If he's not like, and he controls his own destiny forever and ever and ever. Ten and, he, and five. And yeah, he can do whatever. And he's who cares that he makes almost $40 million. He's Mike freaking Trout. Yeah. He can, if he decides he wants to go somewhere else and play for a team that will be in the postseason, who would fault him? And maybe this is something that kind of reminds him that that is something he wants in his career. I, I think that, yeah, you probably look at this year as make or break for the Angels in a, a lot, a lot, a lot of ways, including, you know, they're trying to sell the team and yeah. show him no, a pending free agent and, and all of this stuff. Uh, if I'm Mike Trout and Shohei Otani walks at the end of this year and I haven't won a World Series ring as he leaves, I'm, I would really like out. Now, I'm not saying Mike Trout is going to do that. I'm saying me, Blake, if I had uh, all the talent in the world uh, and was Mike Trout... I wouldn't be doing this show, but I would be demanding a trade at the end of the, <laughs> at the, at the, end of the season if Shohei walks. I, I'm with you. All right, time now for Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Raptors, is, uh, we wondered whether they would be favored in this game when we laid out the, the next week and a half of games and all the tough ones that uh, were ahead of them. Uh, they are favored by seven points against the Thunder. Tonight, they were one-point favorites. Uh, two days ago against the Nuggets and won that game pretty handily. Scotty Barnes, he's uh, got a 17.5 point total for tonight's game. Shea Gilgis-Alexander, just 29.5, which is below his season average. So uh, maybe That's, hit the over on that bad boy. It's because OG keeps limiting what uh, what stars can do against the Raptors. It's the Blake Murphy article versus the Michael Granger article oh, today. Yeah, it's a great way to view it. All right, and then tomorrow, Boilermakers, Purdue, minus 23 against number 16, Fairly Dickinson. And that was the last call. Brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. You'll be without me tomorrow. So the, it's, oh, yeah, the, you, it's the real Blake Murphy show tomorrow. You get to have uh, fun with your kids. And yeah. I get to have just the murderer's row of guests on wow. in your absence. Enjoy that. Uh, I'll be back on Monday. Enjoy Blake's show tomorrow. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.